So let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. Entitled this this morning, The Sending of the Spirit, Part 2. And um, even though the Spirit is mentioned only at the beginning of our passage, I believe we'll see how this is part and parcel of what Jesus is promising here. And we are continuing our study of the Gospel of John this morning, and we're looking at what is, what is called the Upper Room Discourse, and how Jesus is bringing comfort to His men as He has told them He is uh, close to departing, specifically as He has now made a promise about the Holy Spirit being sent by Him and coming to them as their comforter. He calls the Holy Spirit another comforter, meaning He Himself has been a comfort to them, and uh, will continue to be a comfort to them through the Spirit. And we pick up this morning on these verses again. I'm going to have you remain seated this morning as we do our New Testament reading from the passage that we are studying together. John chapter 14, starting in verse 25. I'll read aloud as you follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes... Uh, uh, this is Jesus speaking, that he, he writes uh, what Jesus said. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Uh, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to my Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as my Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Would you uh, join me once again in prayer as we've heard our New Testament reading? Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Old Testament and New Testament reading. And we pray that it will be a blessing to us as we've heard your word read aloud this morning. And we pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, who we believe inspired these words in the original autographs. Also, as we even see here in our text today, that he would illuminate us in our understanding of these things and our, the application of these truths together this morning. Lord, we thank you for the promise that we pray almost every Sunday morning and is found here, uh, particularly in your word, that your spirit does illuminate us. And so, Lord, we pray once again for that. And, uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to direct our lives. And we pray for those who do not know you, that your Holy Spirit would do the work of conviction in their heart, that you might regenerate them to new life, and Lord, give them the gift of faith and repentance this morning. And Lord, may those of us who are in you grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we study. I pray that, Lord, you would continue to humble me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have broken many promises in my life. Even the ones I have kept... I can say with confidence that I have not kept them perfectly because I am not perfect. I am sure that if I sat and even could come up with a minimal list, I would be 
quite ashamed of that. I'm sure I've disappointed my wife, my children, and many, if not most of you. And if we zoom out to the greater scope in our life, I'm sure we can recount not only the way family or church family have not kept promises. We can think of, oh, I don't know, let's just stretch our imagination here. Politicians who haven't kept their promises, companies who haven't kept their promises, and so on and so forth. We live in a fallen world which produces disappointment. This is not true, however, of our triune, holy God of whom we just sang. There is not a single promise that our God has made that either has not yet come to pass, that will come to pass, or ones that have already come to pass. The Lord God, the triune God, keeps His promises perfectly. Some of His promises are contingent upon obedience, which of course none of us do perfectly, but through Christ's obedience on our behalf, even those promises are secured and we need to rest in that this morning. And some of God's promises are unilateral, that is, They are promises that he makes because he swears by himself that he will keep them because there is none greater than our triune God by whom he can make these promises. It is these final kinds of promises and truths that we focus upon today in our text. And it has to do with him, uh, the Lord Jesus, continuing to talk about his departure and yet the comfort of the Spirit being sent from the Father and The Son. Therefore, the main idea this morning, which is written out for you on the back of your worship folder and found for you in an email if you are tuning in via the live stream, is this Jesus continues to comfort his disciples with truths that only he can give as he also reminds them of his departure. So we have to keep that tension in mind. They are um, disappointed to say the least, they are discouraged. Uh, They are sad that He is departing. And He is going to depart from them by way of the cross, uh, through the resurrection and then the ascension. But it's also this promise of the coming, the sending of the Spirit from the Father and the Son that brings comfort to them. I want us to see this morning three declarations Jesus makes that brings comfort to His disciples and should bring comfort to us as well. These are promises. These are All promises, though they don't all in our um, points here use the word promise, we could put that word in there. The first one does, though, it's this, a promise of teaching and remembrance. As Jesus speaks of sending the Spirit, He makes a promise of teaching and remembrance. Look at verses 25 and 26 again with me of John chapter 14. Jesus again speaking says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. As Jesus has spoken with them in person, so now the Spirit will teach and bring things Jesus has taught them to remembrance. We see this kind of as a a both and 
uh, nature here. Jesus has spoken these things while he is with them. Notice the, uh, uh, the preposition there. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. Uh, uh, the implication of which is there is coming a time where I will no longer be with you. Therefore, the things that I have spoken to you will only be things that are in your memory. Those of us who have had loved ones who have passed away, unless we have some sort of audio recording or video recording of the things that they have said, the, uh, those phrases, perhaps even those things that they said often, are but distant memories in our mind. They are echoes of the person. They are no longer with us. They said those things while they were with us. But as time goes on, even the the copy of that that we may have written on paper or in audio doesn't hold the same weight, does it, as having them with us. We miss that presence. And the disciples will certainly miss the presence of Jesus. He is currently, as he is saying these things, with them, and yet he also is speaking of a time when he is no longer going to be with them. And and um, perhaps part of the reason that Jesus says this is they know or perhaps are even asking, how will we remember everything that he has said to us? Besides being one who does not keep promises well, I'm also one who does not have a great memory. I have to write notes down for myself. And perhaps that is the reason why I have even not fulfilled promises to you because I've forgotten to write them down. So how will they recall all of what he has told them? How will they be those who represent him to the world Well, he says, it will be with the help, the helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will continue to bring things to memory and to teach them. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit will not only bring these things to memory, He will continue to teach them. What does this mean for them? Well, for one, it means that there is more for them to learn more for them to learn from what Christ has taught them. They will need to continue to learn from God even once Christ has gone. They have been learning what these Old Testament prophecies and types of Christ were and how they apply to Him. They have the commands of Christ to fulfill uh, the great commandment as He has given them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then soon the, the great commission to go into all the world and to make disciples. And His promise once again that He will be with them even to the end of the age. And whose power will they do these things if Christ goes away? Recall the words previously here in verses 15 through 24. Look back up with me if you would. Notice what he says here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What is the, the promise here? That the Father, as we, we discussed last week, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, by virtue of the Spirit's indwelling, will make their home with us. And this is true, firstly, to those disciples. Jesus is telling them they have not exhausted uh, what it it is that He is teaching them. And the Spirit will teach them. The Spirit will bring all things to memory for them. How is it do you, that you, uh, do you think that we got the New Testament? It is through the Spirit. Uh, Peter says that the Spirit carried men along as they were writing these things down. It was under the inspiration. Uh, the authorship is dual. It is mankind and yet it is God as well who authors Scripture through His Spirit. Uh, think about the Gospel of Mark, uh, whose um, experience was Mark really writing down? He was really writing down Peter's experiences. Uh, what we get in the Gospel of Mark is, is Peter sort of dictating to Mark, uh, here is what, has, what happened in the Lord's earthly ministry. Matthew, of course, a, a disciple. Luke, though, a compiler of uh, really, the, 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 the evidence that he was able to find and put together, nonetheless inspired by the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Gospel of John, of course, as we study the Apostle John, is writing these things down, though he was much older when he wrote it down. Some of you who are more mature in years, let's say, who are struggling with memory. How could a man who was probably in his 90s remember all these things? It was the Holy Spirit. And yet they had things to learn as well. Things to progress in as Jesus had taught them. They, they didn't quite grasp everything that Jesus had set up until this time. And notice when the Spirit comes that Peter in Acts chapter 2 stands up and preaches with authority the things that Jesus had been telling him. What comes upon Peter and the disciples moments before he gets up to preach, but the Holy Spirit. Well, what does this mean for us as those who are in Christ? If you are here this morning and in Christ, what does this mean? Well, we stand on this side of the resurrection and Pentecost. As we studied last week, the Spirit dwells in us, and we are recipients of Christ's teaching and the apostles' teaching. Therefore, when we open the Scriptures... We are able to believe that the Spirit is able to illuminate, open our eyes and our, our hearts to an understanding of that truth far beyond what an unbeliever can understand. Not that they can't read the words and make something out of it, but how is it that it is applied to our lives? Uh, Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians that it, it, these things are spiritually discerned, or maybe it's First Corinthians, I can't remember. One of the Corinthians, uh, he says these things are spiritually discerned. Therefore, one who does not have the Spirit cannot discern these things. So, we take the message of the crucified and risen Savior and we call others to believe it. Because this is the teaching of Christ and the apostles. We call our believing brothers and sisters in this local assembly to continue to believe it. To live by it. We, as we open the Word of God in our reading and studying God's Word and are illuminated by the Spirit, we are convicted of our sin. And yet we are comforted by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We help those who are in need by meeting both their physical and spiritual need. 
We do not feed the poor without also proclaiming the gospel. We do not ignore the needs of those with whom we have opportunity to proclaim the gospel. It's a both-and proposition. And then, to those of you who are not in Christ, I am proclaiming to you this gospel. This is what you need most of all. You need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that uh, you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of God's glorious standard, a a standard that only Christ could keep, Uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who puts on flesh, who comes and lives the life that you could not live, and then dies the death that you deserve and rises again on the third day and ascends to the Father and sends His Spirit to dwell in those who are in Christ. You need that regeneration of the Spirit this morning. The work that He does in a life of unbelievers as He makes them alive unto salvation and grants the gift of faith and repentance so that they might turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. My call to you today is to do that. As Jesus is leaving them, He is telling them truths and making promises concerning the Spirit and His ministry to them. He is also giving them these things in promises. We see one of those gifts in our second point. A present of peace. We first see the promise of teaching and of remembrance. We secondly see a present as in a gift of peace. Jesus promises peace to them. He promises and gives them peace. This is certainly tied up in what He has told them regarding His departure and the coming of the Spirit. Notice, first of all, He leaves them with peace. Look at it again in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. And then notice He says, peace, my peace, I give to you. It's a personal possessive here. His peace. He says, my peace I give to you. What does he mean when he says, peace I leave with you? How will he manifest peace to them? Likely the disciples would have heard this and understood it as a messianic peace. Jesus is, after all, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was promised The Messiah, as they understood it, and rightly so, was to bring peace. He was to bring peace. And as you are thinking about this as a Jewish disciple, you are thinking about it in terms of the history of Israel. What has Israel experienced? Has Israel experienced peace? If they have, it has only been for a moment A temporary peace. What have they experienced? War with surrounding nations. Those who sought to destroy them. War within their own ranks against one another sometimes. As we see even sometimes in the book of Judges or uh, in the book of Kings. War with those who sought to make a fool of Yahweh. Their hope is a physical kingdom where the peace of God reigns upon earth. Certainly, there is a messianic angle to this. This is, after all, the Messiah, and it is His peace. He claims, I will give you my peace. So it is a messianic peace. It is a kingdom peace as well. At least, 
spiritually so, for it is the peace that Jesus brings between God and men, and at least believing mankind with believing mankind. This does not eliminate the peace with non-believers. After all, we do our best to be at peace with all men, but there's a special kind of peace that we are to have with the brethren in the church that is established by the Spirit and maintained our, uh, by our submission to God through Jesus and by the Spirit. Uh, as Paul says, I urge you, the church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we see how even as Jesus is saying, I leave you with peace, I give you my peace, this is wrapped up in His sending of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who brings peace to the body of Christ, and it is we who through our submission to God maintain that peace. And there is, of course, greater than this, and the reason for that peace amongst brethren The ultimate peace, the reconciliation of God with men, which is what Christ provides through His perfect life, death, and resurrection. And we who were God's enemies are now His friends. That is the ultimate peace. For it is while we were still sinners and and enemies of God that Christ died for us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5. This is the kind of peace that Jesus speaks of. How is he leaving his peace? How is he giving them this gift of peace? It is through his obedience in going to the cross. He is the only mediator between God and man. Why? Because he is the God-man. He is the eternal Son of God truly, and truly God, therefore, and truly man because he puts on human flesh. And He reconciles us to Himself through His perfect life. He never sinned through His death, at which point He receives the justice of God, that which we deserve, the justice of God. And He does not remain in the grave. He is truly killed as a sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God in our behalf. But He is raised again three days later. Triumphant over, victorious over sin and death through the resurrection. And through that, those who are God's enemies are reconciled to Him. And that is the most important peace that we can ever experience. And yet, as well, it reconciles us brother to brother, brother to sister, sister to sister, in the body of Christ as well. And so we are to be at peace with one another, brothers and sisters. Uh, What is the kingdom of God but a people who is made up from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Reconciliation truly happens at the foot of the cross. Notice he says, It is not as the world gives, but as He gives. Verse 27, Not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I do not think he means here the peace that the world offers, that is a faux peace, but rather this is a a preface to what he will say to them about the world hating them later in his discourse. The world does not give them peace, but trouble. 
When he says, I leave you my peace, he then goes on to say, but the world will give you trouble. In fact, this seems to be the case as he mentions their hearts being troubled and afraid. Troubled and afraid of what? Troubled and afraid of the suffering that comes if you bear the name of Christ. Just as Israel bore the name of Yahweh and suffered, we too bear the name of Yahweh in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as believers, we will have troubles from all sorts of things, whether that is troubles in life because of this fallen world in which we live. Therefore, we deal with sickness and we deal with death or trouble from the world in in regard to persecution, whether that is social persecution or, or physical persecution. There is this trouble that we will face. Yet, He lives, leaves them with His peace. He leaves them, and yet, He also gives His Spirit. The Spirit of truth comes to them and reminds them of what He has taught them, and He continues to teach them. What a comfort this is for them and for us. Listen to just a, a paragraph out of the London Baptist Confession that deals with the assurance of grace and salvation This is from chapter 18 and paragraph 3. Listen to what it says. This infallible assurance, the assurance of grace and salvation, this infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, notice we're talking about the gifts that Jesus gives us the Spirit to know the things which are freely given Him of God. He may, without extraordinary revelation, in the duty of every one to give all, I'm sorry, in the right use of means attained thereunto, and therefore it is the duty of every one to give all diligence to make His calling and election sure, and thereby His heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit." in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness, in duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So far is it from inclining men to looseness. Now that's some older language there. What is he saying? Or what are the authors of the confession saying? Pulling from the scriptures. That the peace that he leaves us with, though we encounter many troubles, though we even deal with the sins of our own heart and life, Leave us an assurance, a comfort that He has saved us. Not that obedience, therefore, then is the assurance other than that is the fruit that we have been saved. And it does not lead, I love that old language, to looseness. Meaning it doesn't lead to liberty to live any way that we want to, but rather to a freedom to obey the Lord out of a sense of love for Him. And it is indeed an assurance, is it not? Part of this is to reassure them that his leaving is the right thing. Look at verses 28 and 29. You heard me say, To you I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. He is not implying, by the way, that they do not love him, but they are to understand that in loving him, Though they would desire for him to say it is the the righteous thing for him to go. He has told them before, he goes so that when it happens, they are prepared. This is part and parcel of peace as well. This is what's supposed to happen. 
Now, we need to address something here since it stands out to us as we have talked about Trinitarian theology recently and the Son being equal with the Father. Why does Jesus say the Father is greater than Him? It does not mean in essence that the Father is greater than the Son for they are of the same essence. It does not also mean in order of importance that the Father is greater than the Son, though we would say that the Son eternally derives His essence from the Father. It it seems rather to mean that the Son in His incarnate state is not ultimately where He desires to be. When He leaves, it it says later in John 17 that He returns to the fullness of His glory. Listen to what D.A. Carson says, quote, If Jesus' disciples truly loved him, they would be glad that he is returning to his Father. For he is returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the Father before the world began, to the place where the Father is, is undiminished in glory, unquestionably greater than the Son in his incarnate state. To this point, the disciples have responded emotionally entirely according to their perception of their own gain or loss. If they had loved Jesus, they would have perceived that his departure to his own home was his gain and rejoiced with him at that prospect. As it is, their grief is an index of their self-centeredness, end quote. In other words, it's as if Jesus is saying, this is part of the plan. And it is the part where I, the incarnated Son, who in no ways have... Had my divinity diminished, nonetheless, this dwelling here on earth is not ultimate, but I am going back to the Father in a glorified human body, at which point I will sit at the right hand of the Father and be back to the glory I once fully had with Him. And you, disciples, ought to rejoice in this. And notice His reasoning. And now I have told you, verse 29, I have told you this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. He is preparing them for his departure. And he is preparing them so that when it happens, they would believe. Believe what? Chrysostom here places the words from John 13, 19 and adds, so that they might believe that he is I am. So that you might believe that I am. Implicit in Jesus' statement about belief here is that He is the eternal Son of God, that He is eternally God, of the same essence of God. Uh, This is not in some way separating Jesus out of the Godhead, as the Arians and then later the Socinians tried to promote. Uh, This is one of the main verses for those who would try to say that Jesus is not equal with the Father. In fact, Jesus is actually emphasizing the fact that He is equal with the Father when He says this. He, he, he says, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. He is saying, I belong with the Father. He is saying that He is, in essence, what He has said previous in the Gospel of John. I and the Father are one. And the only way for there to be the fullness of this glory is for my incarnated body to be glorified and to also dwell with God. This is not my ultimate dwelling, is what Jesus is saying. So indeed, he is even emphasizing the fact that he is God. When Jesus leaves, he is going going to the Father in glory, where he is of the same essence as Yahweh, God, and where he belongs. Part of the peace which he leaves them is that he is fulfilling the plan that he was commissioned to do. 
This is part and parcel of the plan. This is the, the completion of the plan is that he would go to the cross, that he would die, that he would be raised again, that he would ascend in a glorified body to the Father. This is what we call in theology the covenant of redemption. That the triune God eternally decreed before time that they would save the elect and that it would be by the means of the eternal Son putting on humanity and dying in the place of sinners and reconciling them to Himself, being raised on the third day and returning as the glorified God-man to His rightful place on the throne of heaven. This is all part of the plan. For those of us who are in Christ, it should comfort us to hear this. This is the peace that God secures for us with Himself, and it is the peace that is the unity within the body of Christ. Those who were enemies of God, now His friends, and those who were enemies of each other, now reconciled in Christ. And what does He tell them earlier? We cannot forget the context of this. If I go, it is to go and prepare a place for you so that when I come again, I might receive you unto Myself so that where I am there you may be also. What is he telling us is our, if we're in believers, our proper place of dwelling. It is in the presence of God. And that ought to comfort and bring rejoicing to our hearts. Do not be so earthly minded that you are no heavenly good. To turn the phrase. For those who are not believers... The bad news before the good news is that you are indeed God's enemy. You may think that you love God, but it is a God of your own making. You cannot love the God of the Bible in the unregenerate state. You need to be transformed, to be a lover of God and not his enemy. Because you are a rebel at heart who... Even the existence of God you desire to suppress with your own sinfulness. And then create a God of your own making is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. You are God's enemy and the only means by which you can have peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen that Christ promises the coming of the Spirit, the sending of the Spirit, who will continue to teach the disciples, and guide them in truth. And it is the truth in which we are guided by the Spirit because it is uh, Christ's truth. It is the apostolic truth in which tradition we stand because it is truth. And it is also the promise of the gift of peace to them. He promises that to them. He promises it to us. We now lastly see, based on what we have just talked about, that Jesus assures them of this as a part of the plan, uh, of the plan because it is His obedience to emphasize this point of the completion of the plan, he talks about his obedience. Number three, for us, a proclamation of obedience. A promise of teaching and of remembrance. A, um, you know, the second point, whatever I said. <laughs> the promise of the gift of peace, the presence of, present of peace. And then thirdly, a proclamation of obedience. It's good if I write these things in my notes. Even as Jesus has promised that the Spirit will soon be the one who is communicating truth to them, He now states that He is lessening His conversation with them. Notice in verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you. Well, that's kind of a disappointing thing, isn't it? He's saying the conversation is coming to a close. Even as Jesus promised that the Spirit will soon be with them, the one who is communicating truth to them, he now states that his conversation is lessening with them. 
He then turns his attention to obedience to the Father and the ruler of this world coming. Look again at verses 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This, too, is a part of the fulfillment of the Trinitarian plan. You've got to love this language. The ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me. The Greek here. If it were to be literally rendered, it might say, the devil, he has no nothing on me. There's a double negative here, which in the Greek actually emphasizes the negative aspect of it. He might say, the devil, he has nothing on me. This sounds like an R&B influenced gospel song, doesn't it? He's got no nothing on me. As Carson tells us, it's actually a Hebrew legal idiom that means, as the ESV renders it, the devil has no claim, no hold on Jesus. In other words, this is amazing. What is about to happen to Jesus is perfectly a part of the eternal plan of the triune God. The charges that are brought against Jesus are utterly false. Whereas we sin and deserve what we get, Jesus gets what we deserve having not sinned at all. The legal case against Jesus, the the blasphemy charges, the insurrection charges, they are false and untenable. It is what Jesus in His incarnation has been commanded by His Father to do, that He now goes to do, that the world may know that He loves the Father. What is He saying? I mean, what is about to happen here? They're about to go to the garden where Jesus suffers, thinking about what it means to go to the cross. Judas is about to show up. And what do the disciples begin to think? The devil has won. Our Lord is not only not conquering. Remember, remember Peter? He, he, he takes up the sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear. Like, let's go to battle. I think he was trying to cut his head off. He just was a fisherman, not a swordsman. What does Jesus do? Peter, put away your swords. Picks up the ear, puts it back on the In the midst of being arrested, shows that he is Yahweh God by healing the ear. This is what's supposed to happen. And the disciples may think the devil has won. And Jesus is saying here, the devil, he has no nothing on me. He's got no nothing on me. This is the plan. Here, once again, we get a glimpse of the intra-Trinitarian love that is expressed not only in the act of the incarnation itself, but also in the moment that is coming at the cross. Now, the, the love of God intra-Trinitarian is eternal. There's never a time where the three persons of the Trinity, same in essence, distinct in what we call uh, relations of origin, Father unbegotten, Son eternally begotten, Spirit spirated from the Father and the Son. There is never a time where they have not loved perfectly. 
And in space and time, that love is expressed in the coming of the Son, His obedience in His incarnation, His going to the cross, His resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. How does the world know, as they look at what they merely think is a man, how does the world know that, that, that he loves the Father? It is through his sacrifice. The words of Pilate ring in our ears here, don't they? I find nothing wrong with this man. What you do, you do unto yourself. He, he washes his hands of it. Symbolically, he has everything to do with it because Peter later says, Pilate put him on the cross. I love the meme, if you've ever seen it, where it's a picture of Pilate washing his hands and he says, I've washed my hands of this. The, the Christians will never remember it. And then the next one shows the creed where Pilate's name shows up. The Apostles' Creed. But what Pilate proclaims in that moment is true. Jesus is completely innocent. His love for the Father has shown that He would go to the cross for sinners like you and me to reconcile them to Himself through His life, death, and resurrection. Jesus then tells His disciples it's time for them to get up and go from this upper room for Him to meet This divinely appointed time. The devil does his deed through the vehicle of Judas. Remember, John tells us that the devil entered Judas, and now Judas is on his way with those who will arrest Jesus. And Jesus must be on his way with his men for this to occur. This, dear ones, is the plan of the ages. This is God's plan to glorify himself through the Trinitarian plan, which now is coming to fruition in space and time. The devil is not only not in control, he can't do anything to stop this plan, which will not signal his triumph, but rather his ultimate defeat. This is our salvation, believer. This is the means by which God brings peace between us and him and between those with whom we have been enemies in every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be united in Christ in His body as the church. This does not mean, however, that every individual in the world will be reconciled to God and to each other, but that there will be representatives from all tribes, tongue, and nation. But do not hear this as somehow you having no hope if you sit here as one who has never trusted Christ. My plea to you once again this morning is that you would turn from your sin, for we are all sinners who deserve the justice of God, and that you would trust in Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, I hope the application is clear. I hope that your hearts are rejoicing in this plan of God that comes to pass. We are to rejoice in our reconciliation with God, which is secured and sealed in us by His Holy Spirit. We are also reconciled to one another in Christ so that we are to be those who care for one another as those who are a part of the same body united in Christ by the Holy Spirit. There is no grounds upon which we cannot have peace in this local assembly. And praise God, there is nothing right now that is causing division. But what does Paul say? It is our job in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His Spirit to maintain that which has been brought about by the Spirit. 
we therefore maintain that peace. Brothers and sisters, things are going to come up. Things are going to try to rock the peace of this local assembly. Do not let that happen, not by sheer force of will, but by submission to the Spirit. That is how we do that. There's a peace with God and there's a peace with each other. We are to come alongside of one another, remind each other of this, and to therefore live it out. Would you please pray with me? God, it is by your grace that we are able to say that we are sons and daughters of God because it is by your grace that you have adopted us into your family by the regeneration of the Spirit through the gifts of faith and repentance that we are able to do that, Lord. It is by your grace, by your mercy, uh, that sinners like uh, those of us who are in here this morning and are in Christ, that we are able to be in Christ. It is by your grace and mercy that we can be reconciled to you, Lord, as no longer your enemies, but as your friends, as your children. It is by your grace and mercy, Lord, that we are not only reconciled to you, but we are reconciled with one another, especially as we covenant together as this local assembly. And Lord, it is by your grace and mercy that we go forth in discipleship and, uh, and, and certainly coming alongside of one another and encouraging each other uh, while it is still called today, that we also go forth and we proclaim the gospel to the lost, that they can be reconciled to God, uh, though they are his enemies, they can become his friends through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would build up in our hearts a love for one another that is propelled by this truth this reconciliation to you and to one another. That as Paul says, we might be built up into the body of Christ through love. And by exercising those spiritual ministries that we have been given. And then, Lord, we pray that if there are those who do not know you, that today might be the day that they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.